Hello everyone and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is March 14th, 2017. Following on the steps of the meeting of the Prime Minister and the President of the United States three weeks ago, the Ministers of Finance and Commerce and Trade will be meeting next week. I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Chuchek and Dr. Nancy Snow. Today we're also joined by Glenn Fukushima. Welcome back, Glenn. Thanks very much, Tim. This meeting that's going to uh, happen next week, it's already being laid up with telephone calls and press reports of how people are positioning themselves. Yeah, so I think uh, when Prime Minister Abe met with President Trump on the 10th of February in Washington, he made this offer of the uh, uh, growth and uh, uh, employment initiative mm -hmm. from the Japanese side. And I think the hope on the Japanese side was that this would be uh, enough to satisfy the U.S. by offering uh, Japanese companies to invest in the United States. And uh, I think, frankly, the U.S. side really doesn't have many people in place. You know, at the State Department, there's only two people, <laughs> the Secretary of State and the, uh, the uh, Ambassador of the United Nations who've been confirmed. Uh, the Commerce Secretary recently was confirmed, uh, and Treasury Secretary is confirmed, but the Deputy Secretary, Undersecretary, Assistant Secretary levels have not been filled yet. And uh, I think it's going to take, I would say, probably at least six months now for those positions to be filled. So I think that even this first meeting will be just a very preliminary meeting where I, I think probably it's going to be basically the Japanese side offering some ideas and the U.S. side listening. Mm -hmm. I don't think there are too many people on the U.S. side who are prepared to actually analyze and make counteroffers or counterproposals about what needs to be done. Well, they talked a lot about it at the, on the golf course, and one of the issues that people are waiting for them to talk about is currency, Michael. Well, currency is the big issue for the, for the U.S. President uh, Trump's uh, advisor, Peter Navarro, who, as the head of this White House Trade Council, has put a lot of emphasis on that as being a major source of Japan's advantages in terms of the trade relationship. They're playing with the yen. That they're playing with the yen and the, that the uh, weakening of the yen that has taken place as a part of the first abenomics, the, the first three arrows, the monetary easing, was effectively actually a, a policy of devaluing the yen. And there's truth to that. There is truth to that. The, the, the U.S. Uh, side is not entirely mistaken in that. When Mr. Abe and his team are in country, when they're talking inside Japan or inside the diet, they talk specifically about weakening the yen. Mm -hmm. It's only when they go outside the country to international conferences or to Washington that they suddenly say, no, 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 that's monetary easing. It's not the same thing. So they've been playing a double game and maybe they're gonna be caught on it. Mm -hmm. And let's be clear too, what do you get from a weakened yen from Japan's perspective? You get this doubling potentially of the number of foreign tourists by 2020. That's, so it's up right. to 20 million now, I think in, January of 2017, it was up almost 25% from a year ago. So they want people to come and spend money here. It's not just about the trade of products, mm -hmm. but it's about the exchange of persons. Mm -hmm. uh, what's fascinating though with this uh, dynamic is that you have reporting now with, as Glenn makes the point, there are so few people who we know who are in place, in position. So there's all this speculation. There sure. was an article about a five-minute phone call yes. that these two had in anticipation of a meeting. That's not even news to me, mm -hmm. but it, it shows what an information gap we have coming out of Washington. People are tremendously trying to read the tea leaves, aren't they? Looking for some sort of indication of what's going on and what's coming down the path. Yeah, so I think, as Michael said, uh, there are people like Peter Navarro who have these views about currency manipulation. I think the president himself 
at least since 1987, has been talking about Japanese manipulation of the currency. At the same time, you know, we do have people in the administration who are uh, in the, from the business community, whether it's, you know, Secretary of Commerce, Secretary of Treasury, head of the National Economic Council. So you have people with business background, and you also have people with um, military background. And so I think the Japanese uh, hope and expectation is that these business people, the kind of traditional business people, uh, especially in the financial sector, those people yeah. and the former military people will kind of hold things steady. Although there are people like Peter Navarro and maybe Steve Bannon and others with a very, very much of an America first uh, view that the whole trading structure needs to be changed fundamentally to advantage the United States and not Japan and other countries. Well, it looks like the United States is looking for lessons from Japan because isn't the president also talking about um, the, the value of the U.S. dollar so that exports become a little bit more attractive? Yeah, so there was a report when uh, Michael Flynn was still the National Security Advisor that one evening at like, like 3 o'clock, he got a phone call from the president asking, is it better for the U.S. to have a strong dollar or a weak dollar? Mm -hmm. And so I think there's some, I'm not sure that there's a clear view within the administration. I think that actually on this and many other uh, issues, I think there are, are varying views within the administration. And one of the challenges is to be able to understand, you know, who, who's going to have the influence and mm -hmm. I mean, I think Donald Trump's uh, management style has been to hire people with different points of view, have them fight it out, and then at the end make the decision. So even for those people who are actually involved in the discussions, it's hard for them to predict what the final outcome's gonna be. Right. You know, you're back and forth between, you know, Tokyo, Washington, D.C., and in, in, uh, New York as well. Perhaps you can give us some insight into William Haggerty, who has been nominated as a uh, ambassador. Actually, he hasn't been officially nominated yet. His name has appeared in several news accounts. Uh, both in the United States and Japan, as the person who was most likely to be nominated to be uh, ambassador to Japan. And I just heard just yesterday from a senior Japanese government official that the Japanese government has... Uh, uh, Blessed it. Yeah, they've, they've given their agreement, which right. is the French term that they use where the host government gives the approval. They pass the uh, smell <laughs> test. And so, yeah, so, right. so this person was telling me that probably within the next week or so, the U.S. government will be in a position to make the formal nomination. And then from there, there's the White House investigation, the FBI investigation, right. the Senate confirmation process. And finally, I think most likely um, early summer to fall is when the ambassador should come. Because I've looked into this, I think the earliest in recent years that a U.S. ambassador has come after an election is April. That's um, Tom Schieffer, who in the uh, second Bush administration came to Japan. But in the first administration, he was in Australia, already as ambassador. So he had gone through all the paperwork, all mm -hmm. the filings, all the procedures. All he had to do was go back from Canberra to uh, Washington, D.C., go through the confirmation process for Japan. So he came in April. The latest in recent years is Tom Foley, who was uh, late, late November of uh, 1997. And there was almost one year between Mondale's departure and Foley's arrival. A lot of contention going on there in the, the confirmation hearings, though, right? I don't know it'll be – I don't think it's going to be contentious, I think, because um, – I think, you know, Haggerty's had the business experience with the Boston Consulting Group and was involved with the um, state uh, Republican Party in Tennessee. He was also head of the um, state's economic development. He did a uh, great job uh, there, didn't he, yeah, for Tennessee? I think so. So yeah. I don't think it's going to be controversial. I think he'll, he'll, I don't know whether he'll sail through, but I think that mm -hmm. I, I haven't heard that there's going to be any controversy. And the, the Japanese side uh, has gotten, uh, you know, good, good word about him. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And there's no other uh, second contender. I mean, is it impolite to have, uh, we're going to have one 
potential candidate and somebody yeah. sitting in the wings, you usually ride with one? No, I mean, it's almost always the case that the, 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 the administration nominates mm -hmm. uh, someone. I, I, the last time I can remember is back in 1989, at the beginning of the George H.W. Bush administration, Mike Armacost and Gaston Seeger were considered the last two contenders, and then Mike Armacost became, uh, was chosen to be the ambassador. But I think that there really hasn't been much contention since then about who would become ambassador. He was a great ambassador, wasn't he? Yes. Oh, yeah. Michael Mike Armacost did a good job. Yeah. I have a question in terms of the, what you, as a, as a former trade negotiator, mm -hmm. and, and familiar with both sides, the, the long, the, when you were uh, at USTR, there was a lot of emphasis on bilateral mm -hmm, sure. negotiations. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And in recent decades, they've pulled away from that into multilateral frameworks, mm -hmm. the regional TPP, and multilateral, yep. yeah, regional and multilateral yep. frameworks. Right. Now the United States wants to unilaterally mm -hmm. impose bilateral negotiations on all of its trading partners. Right. Where, where do you, from your point of view between Washington and Tokyo, yeah, right. where, what's your read on that? You know, that? It's, it's really a very interesting point because I think it's actually absolutely true that in the 1980s, the, the focus was on bilaterals. The U.S. was doing bilaterals, Japan was doing bilaterals, and that's what both sides preferred. You know, there was the GATT system, and then there was the bilaterals. But since that time, especially since the end of the Cold War, 89-90, increasingly things have become regional. There's APEC, mm -hmm. there's ASEAN, you know, and, and now TPP, right? And so... Um, Actually, the U.S. was kind of taking leadership, saying that let's have a multilateral framework and not just have bilateral trade agreements. So we have to protect intellectual property rights. We have to protect the environment. We have to do all these other things to set kind of the the rules, a rule uh, for the structure, for the architecture of trade and investment. Well, also uh, the trade networks have changed with the supply that's right, chains. That's mm -hmm. right, exactly. So all of that, the economics have changed, the politics have changed. And the U.S. was kind of, uh, as you say, you know, moving more in the regional and multilateral direction, kind of dragging Japan along. Japan was, in a sense, in the beginning, initially, was kind of kicking and dragging uh, to go along. And now and saw the Japan line. kind of got to the point where they're saying, TPP, that's great. Mm -hmm. We really want to do TPP. Now the U.S. has pulled back. Uh -huh. And so we're kind of crossing paths. <laughs> now we're doing the bilateral. Japanese wants multilateral. And especially with the rise of China, I think there's a, a view especially among Japan and other countries in Asia, that it actually better is to have mm -hmm. a multilateral framework with the United States heavily involved as a way to kind of counterbalance China. So it's, it's quite interesting that, that what the Japanese used to like, bilateral, now they, they are preferring the multilateral, what the U.S. used to like, the multilateral, yeah. now the Trump administration says it's all bilateral. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is a ploy? that uh, Trump is using this as a kind of negotiation tactic because actually bilateral really generates more more windfall for the participants. Well, I think Trump's view is that uh, the U.S. will get more out of a bilateral deal because I think his view is that if we do a multilateral deal, we have to give give a lot of stuff. And also, a lot of the things that we give, I guess he doesn't have stake, take much stock in things like uh, protecting intellectual property rights, um, you know, uh, setting rules for investment, all of this kind of architecture stuff. Uh, I, I don't think that he has so much uh, time for. 
I right. mean, as a businessman, I mean, he, his, in, he's interested in doing bilateral economic deals as a businessman, as a negotiator, not creating an architecture framework that the U.S. kind of, you know, leads. Mm -hmm. Because I think he believes that the U.S. gives up too much. It's, it's, the U.S. can, he believes the U.S. has so much power that if we do a bilateral that we will be able to use our power to leverage and to get more out of the other party. Mm -hmm. Dr. Dr. Snow, what do you think about the image of the I'm U.S. using that Glenn, power? I'm amazed Glenn because he's become quite a Trump expert. Yes. <laughs> well, you have to be in Washington. Well, <laughs> you really do. So you've accepted him. You're, you haven't signed the change.org uh, petition uh, to impeach him, right? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Okay. Uh, but I, I think if you read The Art of the Deal, I just spoke about this the other night at Temple University, the way that Trump likes to negotiate mm -hmm. is more one-on-one. -on -one. Yep. He doesn't mm -hmm. like complicated things, yep. right? That's he right. wants the bottom line. And a lot of the American people, at least half of the electorate, thought, yeah, we're getting the short end of the stick with these mm -hmm. trade deals. And that putting America first or making America first again, it really worked rhetorically. And so we'll have to see how this plays out. But as a former State Department person, I wonder really where that architecture is going to go, because even in public diplomacy, that has sort of vanished. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's mm -hmm. really, outside of Rex Tillerson, not much happening, not much coming out of the State Department. We didn't even see press conferences. They, they haven't even been communicating mm -hmm. well, the with last the week, press. The last week, as you know, I mean, the whole focus in the Washington uh, foreign policy community is how little power the State Department has. Yeah. The Mexican foreign minister went to Washington just a few days ago, didn't even go to the State Department or see uh, Secretary Tillerson. He went to see Jared Kushner <laughs> because oh, Jared amazing. Kushner is being viewed by foreign countries as in fact, the Secretary of State. Uh -huh. At least for now. At least for now. I've never seen or heard. Slightly more well, in America, it's unprecedented <laughs> that the family should be in charge and is the real right. power. That's it's right. familiar to many people around the globe. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, sure. But yeah, I was talking about the United States. I've never mm -hmm. seen anything. I lived in Washington, D.C. nine years, and the State Department was where it was at, foggy sure. bottom, right. right? Everybody wanted to work there who was in international affairs. I think now everybody wants to uh, maybe develop business skills, right. negotiation skills, because they, they need to sort of change with the times. Not many resumes going to the Environmental Protection Agency. That's right, <laughs> with the proposed, what, 20% slash in the mm -hmm. agency. Not only that, I would probably put the Department of Education will be mm -hmm. also Energy. up. Yeah. Yeah. HHS. Right. right. Yeah. But in, in, in terms of, okay, you talked about the way it plays domestically with the electorate right. and that Donald Trump did that. But Donald Trump is also the leader of the free world. Who said? Yeah, <laughs> but he is. Which and it, as I'm someone, sure he as someone, that, okay, but, From your yeah. own expertise with it, with public diplomacy, right. the, the words America first, yeah. to the rest of the world, that means America gets everything. Mm. Right, America gets it all. Right, and how did what what is your sense of that? Well, look, if you have a cap, you can't give you know making America or giving America a comparative advantage again. You can't get that on a baseball cap. You can only put make America great again. Right. So right. I know it sort of signals it telegraphs to the world it's going to be about us all the time. But you look around the world, this nationalism trend is sticking in a lot of places. Let's take care of our own. Mm -hmm. Even with immigration, 
the drop in the number of illegals coming across undocumented, 40% drop in, in, I think, February right. coming out of Washington, that really shows, uh, well, at least it's going in the direction that Trump wanted and that so many supported. I wrote a piece in the Japan Times, though, about how this has been a crash of America's soft power advantage, mm -hmm. that we were going to be a model for the rest of the world. And we're, we're a new model. <laughs> I don't know what it is exactly, but we have to get beyond just the Trump brand. And I think accept that he's the president, but there is this bureaucracy that's in Washington that is continual. And there are a lot of really talented people, I think, who will continue to do the good work if you care about government in Washington, yeah, and know, many don't, though. Right, right after the U.S. inauguration, uh, where uh, President Trump gave his inauguration speech, there was a front-page article in the Sankei Shimbun that I really re recall vividly, which they said, well, it, um, the President Trump is saying it's America first, America's going to take care of itself, and doesn't care about other countries. We here in Japan also we have to be Japan first. You know, we I, have to I read really, that article. Really take yeah. care of ourselves. Sure. So I think it does have the effect of having other countries think, well, you know, we can't mm -hmm. rely on the U.S. to be generous anymore. We're going to have to kind of take care of ourselves. And uh, and so it has to each country for himself or herself. Well, well Tokyo governor has picked up the same song. Well, that's the, that's the Sankei Shimbun's longtime line. Mm -hmm. It's a realist sure. paper. It yeah, believes yeah, yeah. in self-defense. Yeah. It believes in a strong personal responsibility for Japan to take care of itself right. in so, the security sphere. And I think not Trump, so much Trump on the gives economics. energy to that. Yeah. Gives think, energy yeah, to that. Yeah, and so yeah. they, they're just going down the party well. line. Yeah. <laughs> they, they haven't been converted in any way. Oh, no, 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 no. So, but they've been, I think they've been re-energized. <laughs> it's, sure. it's good for America, so it's good for us, too. <laughs> well, a lot of people are still guessing. Glenn, what is your guess on how the trade negotiations, or if, if it's not even a trade negotiation, it's setting the table for further uh, negotiations on the, the relationship between Japan and the United States. What's your guess on how that's going to pan out? Well, again, you know, it, it, we have uh, Lighthizer at USGR, Peter Navarro. We've got, um, you know, Secretary of Treasury. We've got the Secretary of um, State and the Secretary of Commerce. And, and each of these, I think, has a slightly different take. But one of the things I'm going to find very interesting, I'm going to watch with very a lot of interest, is that Bob Lighthizer, <clears throat> who's going to be the USTR, has to be confirmed yet. He was a deputy USTR when I was at USTR back in the 80s. And he's written and said many, on many occasions that uh, it's a mistake to think that Republicans are free traders. That when in a 2008, for instance, when John McCain was running, uh, Lighthizer wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times saying it's a mistake. If you go back to Alexander Hamilton, go back to American history, Republicans are the ones who protect American mm -hmm. jobs, American go jobs, uh, people, co companies, and so forth. He said, I was very proud during the Reagan administration, he says, that we restrained Japan from exporting to the United States steel, autos, semiconductors. We protected Harley-Davidson. So I'm wondering whether he would actually prefer to negotiate voluntary restraint agreements mm -hmm. from Japan because it, with the exception of agriculture, I don't know that right. there are a lot of American companies that are clamoring to get into Japan. Uh, there, I think in the auto companies, for instance, in particular, I think they're more interested in keeping Japan, Japanese companies out of the United States, whether from directly from Japan or from Mexico, uh, as opposed to trying to get U.S. cars into Japan, which Japan's a shrinking market right. anyway, right? So I, I, I'm going to be very interested to see whether this he's going to try to replicate <laughs> some of the stuff of the 80s of trying to get Japan to restrain. And one of the real benefits of that from the U.S. point of view is that if, um, as opposed to slapping a 25% or 45% tariff, that it's, it's probably not going to be get or WTO illegal 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if 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 two consenting adults, you know, <laughs> agree that one side is going to uh, not export as much as it used to, then you know who can complain, right? So, right. So I'm going to be very interested to see to what extent the energy is going to be on trying to open up Japan and, and get Japan to, to to accept more American products versus restrain. Mm-hmm. To the United States. But you have to look on the Japanese side, who's going to be on the other side of the table from Lighthizer, and that's Seko Hiroshige, okay. who is not someone who is known for his subtlety or, <laughs> or his, his, his farsightedness. Mm-hmm. I have a personal I, I, uh, bugbear with him about virtually everything. No. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I do. Uh, and I, you, work, you have to work with the people that are there, and, and it's mm-hmm. going to be a t- because, as you say, it's going to be a long time before the lower echelons are filled in on the U.S. side. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a top-to-top. And I, mm-hmm. seeing Wilbur Ross or Lighthizer across the table from SECO and then working from there, uh, it, it, unless that we have a cabinet reshuffle and SECO's out, it's, mm-hmm. going to be, it's going to be rough going, I think. What do you, what, what's your take on that? Well, you know, well, within I, I, within within <laughs> your ability to speak in a in a diplomatic way. <laughs> well, you know, everything has to do with you know what's the alternative. You know, mm-hmm. if, if there's a uh, uh, least worst alternative <laughs> or not. And you know, I think frankly, in the 1980s, and I'm not so sure about now, but in the 1980s, in many ways, I think it was easier for Japan to accept the notion of restraining exports than to accept the notion of opening up. Opening up and expect, accept, accepting imports create a lot more problems than restraining exports. Right. I remember when I was at U.S. Chair that Watanabe Michio, then the Minty Minister, would come to Clayton Yai to the U.S. Trade Office and say, "Now we're thinking 1.68 million. Is that is that target? Is that number okay? Once 1.68 million for you know mm-hmm. cars to to be exported to the United States? I, I you know I mean one could argue that Japan has changed a lot in the last 30 years. It's less of a managed economy and therefore." Uh, they are uh, absolutely not going to agree to the notion of restraining exports. But, you know, I mean, it depends on what the alternatives are. Right. Well, apparently uh, the president and the prime minister hit it off. Yeah, and well, it, it looks was, like... It, it was, I mean, it's really interesting because, uh, <laughs> you know, in contrast to the president's discussion on the telephone with the president of Mexico or the prime minister Australia. of Australia, Bill of Australia <laughs> uh, you know, the, I mean, it was very, I mean, he said, we have great chemistry. You know, not only did I shake his hand, but I hugged him because we really feel good about each other, right? So, you know, I was told by a number of people that, that uh, Prime Minister Abbott, to his credit, did a lot of uh, preparation, a lot of study before he went, consulted psychologists, you know, who basically told him, you know, Trump is really a, an egotist, he's, you know, he's, he's a narcissist, you got to really kind of stroke let, him and let him know that he's everything. Let still, your hand you know, be petted. Great, right? great. What a surprise, and, though, for a leader of the free world, and, and, that one, he's one, an egotist. One, <laughs> one, um, one anecdote, which I, I think is really interesting, which I heard from some journalists and then I just got confirmed by some government officials, is that one of the ways on the uh, 17th of November, when they had their meeting in Trump Tower, one of the many ways in which um, Abe tried to kind of um, get close to and bond with the president was to say, we got several things in common. One thing we've got in common is uh, you have the New York Times as your enemy. I have the Asahi Shimbu as my enemy. I succeeded in crushing Asahi Shimbu, and I hope you'll succeed in crushing the New York Times. <laughs> wow. And, and that really bonded them, apparently. Really? So, yeah, that so. was said? <laughs> well, I don't know quote. those exact those exact words. But Wikipedia, <laughs> here I come. <laughs> but that's kind of the tenor. And, and so, I mean, you know, well, that, which explains I mean, the Asahi Shimbu's <laughs> work on the Mori, Moritomo Gakuen <laughs> scandal. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that, you know, I mean, I have to give, you know, Prime Minister Abe credit. I mean, he really did um, study up on how to 
how to uh, get close, how to bond with the president. Right. But, what, but wait, now that he's done that, yeah. is that where Japan should go? Even Abe has said, yeah. I don't know how the other leaders of the G7 will now look at me now that I've done this. <laughs> I don't think he's uh -huh. too worried. I don't think it's true. I think, I think, I think uh, it's been smart. Yeah. <laughs> well, isn't it interesting? You know, in Washington, there have been some people who said um, our embassy, our government is really studying how Mr. Abe did it. You know, how Prime Minister Abe did it, and he was so successful in handling yes, the president. Yeah. So we really have to study. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so there are some people reacting that way. I know that there are many others who react differently. Mm. But <laughs> so, what do you think? Uh, do you think the Trump Abe relationship will carry us through? The Ministers of Finance and Commerce and Trade will be meeting next week. Let's see how that pans out. Please stay tuned. Welcome back. Today is March 14th, 2017. Three times a charm. The Japanese Diet is now considering the conspiracy bill. It's been named and renamed. Michael is sitting on your left for a reason. Michael, you love this conspiracy bill, don't you? I love the conspiracy bill because that's what it really is. They've changed the name to the anti-terrorism bill or the terrorism preparations bill. It doesn't matter what the name is. It's, it's basically the same anti-conspiracy mm -hmm. bill that they've been putting out year in and year out hoping that they can criminalize conspiracy, but which isn't a crime here in Japan. You can talk about doing things and, get away, and, do get, here. and get away with right. it, uh, because it, it, you cannot be told that you are committing or likely to commit a crime and be dragged in by the police. 622 classifications of crime. Well, now they've cut it back to 277, but we should really step back and just discuss the whole notion of conspiracy in a broader sense. Right. Uh, well, it literally means to breathe together. So it can, in a neutral sense, uh, just two or three people coming together. That's to co-inspire, mm -hmm. right? To breathe sure. together. But in this context, of course, with the Abe administration, with its interest in dismantling Secrecy. Article 9, right. with this uh, a quote about maybe uh, trying to censor or stifle the free press, of course, we're all going to get a little bit concerned about how broad is this blanket going to be. As you mm -hmm. say, it's not illegal for people to discuss what they might want to do. Now the government is saying you have to have the actual uh, material right. in place and that there's an imminent act that you're registering to be arrested. Right. But it doesn't really include ordinary people, right? It doesn't include ordinary people, but that's always a ruse. And, and, right. and, and I'd like to hear Glenn Fukushima's view of the whole secrecy and conspiracy idea. Well, you know, since I don't live in Japan, I haven't followed the um, elements of the legislation that as closely as all of you have. But um, it does remind me of the uh, whole state secrets protection law uh, issue from a couple of years ago. And I think that it is within the context of the Abe government trying to clamp down and to, um, you know, have better control of the situation. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that uh, th there are some uh, real um, concerns about uh, the extent to which it will stifle uh, discussion and uh, freedom of, of the press and freedom of speech and so forth. So um, I think it's, it's something that you know, all of us need to watch very yeah. closely. But well, and it's a balance between public safety, right, and civil rights and civil protections. If I were working for the Japanese government, you're looking three years from now at 2020 with Japan being under the spotlight mm -hmm. and there's great concern, not only for actual terrorists coming here, as difficult as it may be with the way that they control their borders, 
but with cyber uh, breaches, we've seen that the world over now, having right. a cyber hacking. So uh, I can, I, you always want to have not too much of a tilt one way or the other, but it, it, from your perspective inside the government, you, you can understand somewhat where right. they're coming from. It's just that the Japanese people and the public and foreigners here, it's hard for us to sort of wrap our arms around all of these different classifications and without worrying that how am I as a, as a citizen, a foreign citizen living here, am I going to be protected if I'm overly critical, right. say, of, of the government? Is and that going to be seen? I think there's a couple of things to here. Yeah. Is one is that I think in Japan it's been traditionally the case that bureaucratic discretion is greater than in many other countries, at least that's industrialized countries. And the other is the role of the courts and to what extent the courts will protect individuals or institutions. And here again, I think there's some doubts that uh, to what extent the courts as, uh, will act independently sure. to protect individual rights and, uh, and rights of, of organizations as opposed to the state rights. Yeah, exactly. You saw with the so-called Muslim ban and the uh, travel, the mm -hmm. temporary travel ban, how quickly the courts responded to that, a federal court in California. So. But the, there would be no such response here in Japan no. to any kind of, of action. First of all, prosecutors have broad leeway and generally they when they file it is the presumption of the court though it's not written down that you're guilty you're guilty yeah 90, uh, that, 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 the, other, the prosecutors wouldn't file otherwise right. and so my mind is just to be the procedural stamp of approval on what is already a, in, an act that has already been established so there's no backup in terms of uh, and and you can even say if you if you're something of a wag you could say that in Japan they don't have a department of justice it's the homosho it's the ministry of law right. justice forget it yeah. you're not going to get justice you're going to yeah. get the law and the law will be interpreted That's again right. as as Glenn has said, just said by a bureaucrat who who will have broad powers to decide what indeed is right. is happening and, there's also, of course, a historical background to this in terms of Mr. Abe always talks about it's been 70 years since the war and we have to move beyond it. We have to move beyond World War II. But for many in Japan, World War II is the crux of the whole story. And that the, the state that existed before 1945 and the defeat was a state where- A police state. A police state right. where associations were, were not free where the press was not free, was the ability to think, to academic freedom. All these freedoms were not protected. Mm -hmm. And any step back toward that 1945, pre-1945 state, for them is a threat to the, the, the life that they've had. Mm -hmm. And so there is an ingrained branding problem, even if there is, of course, for the, the Olympics and Let's not forget the Rugby World Cup in 2019. Uh, there are all the, there's a, a need to coordinate internationally with anti-terrorist organizations or anti-terrorist uh, functions of other governments. That's, that's there, yeah. But to brand it in a Japanese sense has proven to be really hard. Right. Well, the bureaucracy in general, but also in particular this prime minister, has always been accused of overreaching and trying to grab more. And the terrorism part of this bill only came in later as a shoehorn to kind of get the 
get it passed through the diet. That's, I mean, it's it's a, actually a rebranded. Right. You would love it because it originally was called the conspiracy bill, right. Right. the anti-conspiracy bill, and they realized that was went nowhere with the public. So they they actually changed the name of the bill to the, to ter terrorism preparations, etc. Mm -hmm. well, I don't like that name either. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, they're going to have to rebrand the <laughs> But you know, but but sugarcoating things uh, immediately says, okay, so what you had before mm -hmm. was that you weren't being honest about what that is. How can we trust you're being honest about what you're offering now? Mm -hmm. it, it it's 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 a downhill slide, I think, mm -hmm. for the government. But they're going to try to try to pass it by the end of this diet session. And you think the chance were pretty good? Well, the Komeito has signed on to it as an anti-terrorism measure. So mm -hmm. what the Komeito says yes to, that nobody else can. I think they'll pass it. Well, yeah, mm -hmm. it, they, but they will, it'll be with straight party lines, even with uh, the DP in relative disarray and very weak right now. The Democratic Party will be able to at least say, you know, this is a, this is a cruddy bill. We're, we don't, down. Though. Yeah, we yeah. don't support it. Mm -hmm. But not to throw a wrench into the works, the Moritomo school scandal in Osaka is also going to play a little bit into that for a little bit of horse trading. Perhaps they could uh, pass that bill and uh, forget about other things. We'll vote for your 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 um, version of the bill. Well, if, you're, if by Moritomo Gakuen, you're, you're going to allow more exposure in the diet in return for peace on the conspiracy bill, boy, that's going to be a deal that Mr. I was thinking the other way around. Uh, Mr. Abe doesn't have that, that the other way around to offer. He mm -hmm. can have offered to the opposition, okay, we can discuss Moritomo more in return let us get through the conspiracy bill. He, that's that's what he has, and unfortunately, it's not a great deal. That's and they, not very good. They can say because they can say it's going to come out anyway. I mm -hmm. mean, we have just yesterday. It looks like Defen Defense mm -hmm. Minister Inanna is completely fried. Uh, she is, if she manages to survive as Defense Minister through the week, she'll still be completely discredited as a minister. She lied in the diet about her involvement with that organization. She was indeed the lead lawyer for them in 2004, mm -hmm. even though she swore that she had never done any legal work for them or represented them at all. It, he's going to have his hands full, and he doesn't have a deal then. Well, thank God the conspiracy bill isn't a law yet. <laughs> Please stay tuned. We're going to continue to watch this and report it to you as it unfolds. Welcome back. March 14th, 2017. You know, with Japan's declining population, the need for foreign employees and workers to come in bringing skills and labor has increased. Recently, the Japanese diet is considering lowering the requirements for permanent residency. And in this light, foreign trainees are coming in droves to Japan to do menial work and to provide uh, labor under the terms of an internship. Michael, you're watching this too? Well, the, the, the two issues, you would think they were separate because one is talking about highly skilled labor and people who have money versus persons who are largely put into very, very low skills work. 3K, uh, 4K. Well, the, the dangerous, uh, dirty, dirty, and, and uh, people who, things that require a lot of time, mm -hmm. uh, but are nevertheless poorly paid. And so, but it's really part of the whole story of demographics here in Japan that there is simply not enough labor, either skilled or unskilled, to fill the positions that retirees are going to, are, are right. leaving. So, so the Japanese came up with a technique, let's, these other countries that are surrounding Japan, bring in your, your workers here, they can be skilled up. Well, that's what they've 
it, that's the, the other tie, that, that they're going to be skilled up. So it's called the technical training program. It's actually two different programs. And it's become a complete scam. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but it's a necessary scam in that it, people eventually do want to eat lettuce. People mm -hmm. eventually do want to have, if they're going to buy clothes that are made in Japan, somebody has to be paid rock-bottom wages to make those clothes. Yeah, but wait a minute. This started in 2010. So what was Japan doing about people picking lettuce before then? Oh, no, no. This mm -hmm. has been going on for a very long time. The no, training... the, but the, defining them as interns, my understanding was that there were about 100,000 in 2010, 2011. Now it's doubled to a couple of hundred thousand. Yeah, right? The trainees yeah. program has existed for quite some time, it, but it's been, it's been reformed and re-reformed and re-reformed. At least the government, this government, is fi finally saying it's a scam mm -hmm. and people are being abused by this. The most common abuses are simply that they don't pay. Uh, the second is that they take away the, the travel documents, the passports, the, passports right. the visas, so that... And you will do what we say. You do what you say. And that it was the, the first step, of course, that sent it down, barreling down the road into corruption was by taking it out of government hands and giving it to an MPO to manage a nonprofit organization, which has, doesn't have the resources do, to observe all of these different employers, thousands of them around Japan, mm -hmm. has no means of enforcement. It's not a, a vision of the government. It can only say, tis, 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 don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. It's been... So well, even now, right? And even now, it doesn't right. have anything. So that's why they're discussing it in the diet. What can we do? But of course, when you do that, you open up the Pandora's box does Japan need immigrants? Right. And, and then that brings up the, the entire immigrant discussion all over the world. But also, it's a, it's a brand problem for Japan because there's a February 10th article in the New York Times about this issue of Japan's limited immigration mixed in with the shortage of workers. And the very last quote of the article, where they've been sort of following one woman who had to pay about 7,000 US dollars to even broker entering right. Japan. Can you imagine having to pay that back? And that's how they often just get stuck here and become illegals. And her last quote was, my image of Japan was that it was a good country. Sure. And that's what they think. They're coming here because Japan has such a solid, stellar mm -hmm. reputation of taking care of people. Omotenashi, as we talk right. about all the time. But this is very different because these people really sort of disappear. They're out in the hinterland where mm -hmm. you also don't have probably, uh, where do you go? Where do you turn to for labor protections? I mean, they are at the mercy of the state. And as you say, with the MPOs, they don't have the resources to really do much. So mm -hmm. um, it also opens the door then to people who want to exploit these workers to try to get back pay. Right. And, and then the businesses say, well, okay, we're not going to work with any of them. Mm -hmm. So it's this vicious cycle. Right. But even if it's a scam, the Japanese government isn't going to get rid of it. No, they need the labor. That's right. But looking at it from the outside, you know, I mean, one gets the sense being in Washington that, uh, that because the demographic issues are so severe for Japan, there is a realization, especially in the business community, of the need to have skilled workers. And so one gets the sense from outside that there are discussions taking place, maybe not so visibly uh, in Japan uh, in the longer term, but you folks believe that's that's not the case? I mean, you don't think that there's actually going to be a serious discussion about immigration and 
you know, the point system and, you know, what, what is the good, good uh, system oh. like the Singapore or Canada or whatever? No, Did they you... will have to have that here. They'll have the discussion, but it'll be, mm -hmm. in a, I think, in a, totally on an academic level and that uh, politicians will talk about it. Certainly the Mavericks within the LDP will talk about it. Someone like Konotaro mm -hmm. will talk mm -hmm. about it significantly mm -hmm. and say, yeah. look, we, this is, these are things we have to do. Uh, certain people in the DP who are not allied with the labor unions mm -hmm. uh, like uh, Nagashima, uh, mm -hmm. Akisa, uh, yeah, Akisa he would, he'll definitely be on board regarding mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. in both of the main parties, there are extreme protectionist and e extreme conservative elements. In the right. DP, it's the fact that its core is mm. is Rengel and right. the labor unions, yeah. which are not interested in immigration in any right. way. Right. Uh, and then there are all kinds of small businesses mm. which depend on this program, right. which are through the in, I see the Japanese Chamber of Commerce mm. have their push right. on everything that's you know, going on. Yeah, there. I can see that. But you know, also increasingly, I've been uh, seeing on television and also reading in the, in the magazines about how the Japanese government puts money into things like uh, caring for the elderly and especially people with dementia and mm -hmm. Alzheimer's and so forth. But increasingly, they're building these facilities, the hard facilities, but they, they're, they're not opening up because there aren't enough people to take care of the aging, right. you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I have to believe that at least with regard to the, uh, the caregivers for the aged population, that they're going to have to do something pretty, pretty quickly. Right. right. I mean, otherwise, they're, they're, we're going to have all these new buildings, right. no, no people being able to take advantage of them because they, there aren't any people who are going to be willing to work the long hours and get the low pay in order to take care of right. these people. And in that particular industry, that's not a job for interns, right? That's, that's a oh. job for perhaps uh, up-and-coming uh, young unskilled laborers, but uh, there's a, a real phobia here, especially in the medical industry, for mm -hmm. foreign workers. I mean, the the Filipino nurses are coming in. Um, they a, a couple hundred, at yeah, most. a couple of hundred, not very many, but you know, they're 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 trying that. It is a it's an experiment. They need more. There's plenty of Filipino nurses. I disagree with that one because I, I, <laughs> when you look at the numbers, the Philippines exports nurses to the entire world, mm -hmm. and as compared to the the number that they've trained and the number who are actually working in the Philippines, it's it's really strip mining the Philippines. It's and I think the same is true with Indonesia. If you're taking trained medical personnel from those countries, you're it, for me it's criminal. It's simply just robbing those countries of of their their medical system in order to bolster yours. Yeah, cheaply. we call that globalization. Yeah, I know we call it globalization, <laughs> but in this case, it it, 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 it it health is something that should be different. That's mm -hmm. why we have national health programs mm -hmm. uh, because it's something different. And yet, we still seem to think that international nursing labor is something that should be globalized. Right. I disagree with that. But beyond this, the the, the whole issue of who's going to be serving. Uh, these, the government can't be honest about it. It, mm. it has not published, for example, any new figures regarding the number of people leaving their 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 business or their their job in order to take care of an, mm. an elderly yeah. relative. That's a huge since problem. 2012, That's a huge problem. since the since the time that the DPJ was in power, mm. all during the Abe administration, they have not put down a single number. Mm. How many people left last year? Mm -hmm. Zero. And because not of, only that, because there is a gender aspect to this. Oh, because, of course it is. Uh, you know, you sure. see women right. leaving the yeah. workplace because yep. they, in overwhelming numbers, have to care for their. Mm -hmm 
aging right. parents. Right. And right. Well, that's that's been the tradition since the 1970s. The, the, in fact, it was branded in the 1970s as the Japanese way of doing social welfare, which was the men will be workers in the corporate world, the corporations will top off their health care and their pension plans so as to leave the women open to be mm -hmm. full-time mothers and full-time elder care. Right. Right. That was the Japanese way. Well, the Japanese way broke down in the 1990s. Mm. Men started losing their jobs through ristora and all these different things, so that they they couldn't yeah, they couldn't do this yeah, yeah they couldn't do this transition. And women are now working. So the Japanese way that they had, which is the way the pension and health systems and tax systems are set up, has to go through a complete overhaul. And that's way too much for even Mr. Abe and his incredibly powerful government. Hey, right? maybe Japan, maybe the Diet ought to figure out a way to have a quota to have at least half women in the, in the Diet, right? I mean, oh, that's, to get the discussion going, you mean? <laughs> yeah, to keep the, at least to broaden the conversation here and get testimony from what sure. women are, are doing. Well, they're considering that right now. They want, I mean, the rankings of Japanese female Participation, participation in the political world. In the world. political world, it's just, it's so uh, 162 out of 190 countries. Yeah, and, but the th and, and the, in this diet session, there is in fact a, a, multi, a, 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 a transpartisan bill. LDP women lawmakers, DP women lawmakers, even communists, all putting together a bill asking the parties to, okay, it's voluntarily, without any punishment, at least go for equality in the numbers of women candidates that they offer so that we can get these discussions mm -hmm. going. Right. right. Should they all wear white in the, uh, in the diet sessions, Glenn? Yeah, that's a good idea. No oh, pink. <laughs> hey, you may have noticed that, that white is indeed Renho's outfit, and, oh, and, 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 and she wears it nothing but white all the time. So maybe uh -huh. she's up on, already up on things in that regard. Yeah, Hillary Clinton was wearing a lot of white, too. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in, the, um, in, in Trump's uh, speech to the Congress, mm. they had yeah, a, a huge right. group of, of uh, female lawmakers. Democratic, mainly white. Democratic. Yeah. Was that the white flag of surrender? <laughs> no. Uh, no, I don't okay. think so. Purity. <laughs> <laughs> well, Japan is truly between a rock and a hard place when it comes to immigration. Will they challenge this issue? Will more foreign workers be allowed in? We're going to continue to watch this. Please stay tuned.